That was a good James and Molly song. <laughs> I mentioned in prayer that we have Edward and Emily break with us today. Edward and Emily are giving their lives to a great mission field. And that mission field is the campus of the University of New Hampshire. They're so committed to it, they recently, if you get their newsletter, they recently moved closer to the campus, and already there's impact of students sensing the beauty of that proximity. Um, so they're with us today. Now, before they come, let me explain to you what happens when speakers come. Oftentimes, we give love offerings for them. But Edward and Emily, we have this arrangement every year where we don't do a love offering. We're not going to take a love offering today for the breaks for UNH. But what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to seriously consider partnering with them. Our church partners with them in our local missions budget. Some of us in the congregation partner with them on a monthly basis. The smallest amount of money that we can partner with them in, and, and the money's important, but what's more important is our intercession for them because of what they do and the population they're ministering to. And so they're going to be back at the table, and I would really encourage you to ask God, what is it that you want me to do? It may just be to pray, or it may be to be a financial supporter and partner in ongoing relationship. We're investing in students at UNH who don't know God, and some who are away from God, and some who are confused about who God is, and some who need someone to walk with them in the journey. So that's why we bring them here, because, see, they are you. They are part of our people. They are you on the UNH campus. So why don't we welcome Edward and Emily today. It's great to have you. Well, good morning. So like Pastor Jeff said, we're Emily and Edward. Our 14-month-old Samuel is hanging out with my parents. So we'll see how this goes. But it is such a privilege to be here this morning. Um, I was thinking about what you said about Bruce Woodruff, and that is true for us. You are our people. I grew up in this church, and so getting to come back every August and share what we're doing in working in ministry is so special because we get to see new faces, we get to see familiar faces, we get to be reminded of how many people are praying for us and our students. And for some of our students, you guys might be some of the few people who are praying for them. They don't come from Christian homes. So that is such a privilege to get to partner with you in that way. I'm going to take a minute to pray and pray that my voice holds out because I'm fighting a cold. We'll give you some updates on some stories of what we're seeing God do in ministry. And then your theme this summer, Pastor Jeff told us, has been Jesus and the everyday. And so we'll look at a story of that as Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. God, thank you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the ways that you have worked and are working here. And Lord, I just ask that the words that we speak this morning would reflect you and would bring all of us closer to you in your presence this morning. Amen. So I realized as we were preparing for this talk that the first time I stood up on this platform was actually 10 years ago this month. And I was sharing how God had called me away from my plan to be a high school English teacher 
and instead to intern with crew at the University of New Hampshire. And I'm still there a decade later. Um, both of us work for Crew, which is the U.S. branch of Campus Crusade for Christ International. And we work with college students at the University of New Hampshire and a little bit at Great Bay Community College in Portsmouth. Um, ooh, that's a little small, but if you squint, you can see those are some of our awesome students at our most recent winter retreat. And they loved getting to hang out with Samuel for an entire weekend. So, yeah, some things haven't changed in a decade. I still love working with college students. Some things have. We got married six years ago. Um, I met Edward my internship year at UNH while he was volunteering with Crew. And then in 2015, Edward left engineering to join staff full-time. Samuel was born last summer. And then this summer, we moved, as Pastor Jeff said. We moved from our apartment that was about 15 minutes away to a rental house that is, if we tried really hard, we could probably throw rocks from our backyard and hit campus, but we won't. <laughs> um, and that has just been so fun. I had some of our senior women over for dinner on Friday night and sent them home with leftovers because students don't always do a great job cooking for themselves. And I'm just so excited, and they were so excited, and kept saying, this is so great. So that's something we're looking forward to this year. Another thing that's new, and you can click the next slide. Uh, I took on a new role with crew this past spring part-time with the International Mission Trip Operations Team, which is a mouthful, so we shortened it to IMTO, because um, that makes sense. Uh, so this team is a national team and helps with the logistics for all of the international mission trips that CREW sends students on. So everything from a one-week spring break or winter break trip to a multi-week summer mission overseas to a one-year internship with CREW. Uh, our team actually just finished, or is in the process of finishing, buying plane tickets for all the international interns who are leaving this fall. So we're buying plane tickets for about 250 interns going to about 60 different locations. Um, and it's been cool to see this be just a neat blend of my skills and giftings with doing logistics and passion for international missions and sending students to the world. Uh, some of you may remember I spent two years post-college in the Middle East doing campus ministry there. And that experience has continued to shape me. I was actually thinking this morning, some of the stuff we'll share today as we look at the woman at the well uh, comes from things I learned in the Middle East. And to be able to give students and others the opportunity to go and see what God is doing around the world just broadens their view of how God is working. And even one-week trips have an eternal impact, like Pastor Jeff said about a youth group heading off to camp this week, that uh, the spring break, there was a group that went to Sweden to work among refugees there in Europe. And they were in a refugee center and met a man from a predominantly Muslim country in the Middle East that there are one known believer for every 3,000 people. So to put that in perspective, in the city of Nashville, which I think is about 80,000 people, there would be 25 Christians in the entire city based on that percentage. And so they meet this man. He'd been in Sweden about three years, was actually about to return to his home country for a variety of reasons. And he realizes they're Christians. And he's like, you're Christians. Can you tell me about Jesus? I've been here for three years. I've been hoping to meet a Christian because I want to know more about Jesus. 
And so they were able to share that God loves him, that Jesus came, lived, died, and was resurrected so that he could have a relationship with God. They were able to find a Bible app for his phone that includes the Bible in his native language. So he returns home to this very non-Christian country, having heard the message of the gospel and having the Bible in his native language. And one of the fun connections for us is that there's a UNH alumni who will be going long-term to Sweden this year to work among refugees there. And so we get to see a piece even from what we do on campus of seeing students then go to the world. Yeah, I honestly think that's one of the coolest things about working in college ministry is you get four or five years before you send students out to be the next generation of teachers, doctors, parents, missionaries. And you just never know what God will do. And it's incredible to have a chance to see how he uses students after they graduate and while they graduate. Um, but four years is a really short time. And things change fast when you work with college students. So one thought that I had, I started working on campus in 2009. I want to take a quick poll. How many of you, raise your hand, if you had a smartphone in 2009? I see one hand, two hands in this entire room. Okay. How many of you have a smartphone now? Just about every hand went up. Right? So when I started working with college students, I didn't know a single college student with a smartphone. Now I know one student who doesn't have a smartphone. One out of all the students I know. And I think that shows really well the generational shift because the generation that we're working with now on college campuses is what sociologists are calling Generation Z. So anyone born from 1997 onward is a part of Generation Z. That means college students are the oldest part of Generation Z, college seniors. And some of your kids that you had in vacation Bible camp are some of the younger members of Generation Z. And one of the characteristics of this generation is they are what sociologists have termed digital natives. That means they really don't remember a world without smartphones and easy, fast access to the internet. Think about that. They don't remember a world where you had to wait for that really annoying dial-up tone for the internet. <laughs> you didn't miss out on much, if you guys don't remember that, I promise. It was painful. And so, Generation Z, you guys, in the front row here, have this really cool opportunity as people who understand the internet and social media way better than older generations you have this awesome opportunity to make God known through things like Instagram and Snapchat. And so I'd really challenge you. You guys are heading off to camp. Spend time thinking while you're at camp. What does it look like for me to make God's love known to my friends through what I'm Snapchatting, through what I'm posting on my Insta account? And we have this incredible opportunity of seeing technology make the gospel accessible to people in ways that it never was before. I think one of the stories from this past year that really highlighted that for me was Kessler. She was a freshman this past year at UNH, really minimal church background growing up, 
but she was following a couple of people on YouTube and noticed that there were some casual references to their faith. Um, there were some hard things going on in her life, and so she got curious and decided, you know what, I'll explore a little bit more. So she Googled some things about Christianity and kept searching and really liked what she saw. So when she showed up to UNH in the fall, she saw one of our flyers for crew in the dining hall, but was pretty nervous about going, and so she didn't work up courage to actually go to a crew event until December, our very last meeting. Heard what we were sharing, got plugged into one of our small group Bible studies, and just kept learning. And then I had the privilege this spring of grabbing coffee with her and one of our seniors, and we just asked her lots of questions. How did you get here? Oh, that's, that's crazy. You got here through YouTube and Google and had the chance to really clearly share, like, this is what the gospel means, the good news of God coming to earth and living and dying so that we can have a relationship with him. So Kessler, this past Easter, officially decided she wanted to put her faith in Christ and become a follower of him. And I texted her to make sure it was okay to share her story this morning. And she told me she's like reading her Bible this summer and so exciting. But that all started because of YouTube. Her journey started because of YouTube. And that just highlights what could happen in this generation if we are present using technology and making the gospel accessible. You know, I'm not sure what sociologists are gonna do for the next generation, because Z is kind of the end of the alphabet. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe, that's because you guys, Generation Z, are going to be the finishers. You guys are gonna be the ones who finally fulfill the Great Commission using the power of technology and making the gospel known to every language group and people group around the world. But at the same time, as with every generation, there's questions and challenges that come with each generation. And Josh McDowell's ministry, uh, Josh McDowell, the apologist, who his ministry is actually a part of CREW, under the CREW umbrella, uh, has been doing some research. And they say the top five challenges facing Generation Z. And youth group, let me know if you agree or disagree with this afterwards. Like, I would love to hear your thoughts, seriously. Um, but they say the top five challenges facing this generation are mental health, a rise in anxiety, depression, and suicide attempts, shame and emotional wounds, um, a rise in pornography use and sexual assault, uh, I just lost my thought, hurt and isolation, and then a lack of a biblical worldview, um, which I think especially in New England, we can see the fact that we live in a pretty post-Christian society. And so we as a staff team at UNH are thinking about how do we connect with students and how do we present the gospel in a way that they can hear and understand that it is good news for them. And because shame is uh, often felt more by the younger generation than guilt is, one of the things that we're talking about and one of the things that we'll do today is look at how Jesus addresses shame. And so here's a quick crash course in 
the honor and shame culture or worldview, if you'll pop that next slide up, um, that sin results in guilt and shame and fear. And we can actually see this uh, simply in Genesis 3 with the story of Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good eating, which God told them not to eat of. And we see that it immediately results in them going from being, at the end of chapter two, it says they are naked and unashamed. And then they eat the fruit of the tree. They disobeyed God. And one of the first things they do is they realize they are naked. That brings shame. And they bring a covering. They create a covering to cover their shame. That it brings fear that God appears in the garden after they sin. And they hide from God, who before sinning, they had had a perfect relationship with. And it brings guilt that God judges them for their sin. And yet Jesus comes and through his death and resurrection brings mercy so that we can be made innocent in the eyes of God. Brings us honor that we become, as followers of Jesus, co-heirs with Jesus and raised up with him to the heavenly realms, and that he has power. Actually, uh, even the verse from Vacation Bible Club today talked about God being our refuge, because Jesus has power over Satan and sin and death, the things that cause us fear. And so we're going to look today at the story of the woman at the well from John chapter 4, if you want to flip there. And we're going to look at it through the lens of shame and honor. Um, let me say this. The gospel doesn't change, right? Like, the issue is still sin that is being dealt with. But how we feel sin, how we, uh, the result that we sense in our life because of sin changes, and also changes depending often what culture you're in around the world. And in Western US culture, we're seeing a shift from guilt and innocence being the framework that we often work in to this sense of what I've done or what has been done to me brings shame, and that shame needs to be removed. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 3, uh, and I'm just going to take this, this is a long passage, so I'm going to take this in chunks and talk about it a little and take another chunk and talk about it a little. Uh, he being Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. A couple observations from this section. Uh, the passage says it's the sixth hour, which would be the sixth hour of daylight, so about noon. And this woman who lives in a communal society is coming during the hottest part of the day by herself to draw water. That she is an outcast in her society based on this, because she's coming alone in a society uh, that would be communal. And so there is shame simply from the fact that she's not accepted by her community. 
But Jesus, as she comes, initiates a conversation with her. And interestingly enough, Jesus initiates a conversation with her from a place of need and vulnerability, not from a place of power and strength. She comes and he says to her, can you give me a drink? And he starts this conversation not with a statement of whatever, I'm the Messiah and you should believe in me, but a question that draws her in. And I wonder what opportunities we have with people to simply ask a question, to initiate a conversation, to draw them in, and to see where it goes. And Jesus' question catches the woman off guard, right? She's like, why are you asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink when you as a Jew shouldn't even have a dealing with me as a Samaritan, much less as a woman in that society? And Jesus does what he often does. He takes the ordinary and he turns it to something spiritual. In verse 10, he says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do I, you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus takes the physical request for water and turns it to a spiritual conversation and offers her living water, offers her spiritual water that purifies and satisfies. And this is an offer to restore her honor that by taking this living water that Jesus offers, in her will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But the woman doesn't have eyes to see what Jesus is offering yet. And she is still in the physical saying, well, give me this water so then I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come here anymore. So Jesus goes and makes it personal in verse 16. And he says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And simply from Jesus bringing in her husband's, her past relationships, we can see life has been hard for this woman. Right? She has had five husbands, which means that she has had five men who have either died or divorced her. And Jesus calls out her sin of living with someone who is not her husband. But in the hardship of life, there is shame that comes with that. Um, especially in a biblical society where marriage and family are how you are defined as a woman and what brings you honor. So Jesus enters into one of the most painful areas of her life 
And the woman does what we often do when faced with something we don't want to address. She changes the subject, but she enters the spiritual conversation in this next passage and asks her burning question. So Jesus makes this statement about her husband's out of the blue, and the woman in verse 19 says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus answers her question of where should we worship by saying the location no longer matters because I'm here. And he offers that she become a true worshiper of God. He offers that her shame be removed and that she be given the honor of being a true worshiper of God and worshiping in spirit and truth. And then he goes and makes one of the clearest claims that he makes in scripture of being the Messiah, right? She says, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says to her, the one you speak to, I'm him. It's one of the most blunt proclamations of him being the Messiah. And he gives the honor of hearing that to a woman from Samaria who has lived a shameful life. And then in verse 27, the disciples show back up, uh, and they're a little confused. Uh, so just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And we see that there's this seed of faith that the woman has based on what Jesus has told her because she goes and she acts. And she goes into the town, and this is super interesting to me, her shame no longer matters because she's met Jesus. She shows up in the town and she says, there's a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Which, if you're the town people, and you know her in her life, and she's been an outcast, they've got a pretty good idea of what that is. And yet, she's not ashamed to declare, I met someone who told me all these things about myself. Come and see, could he be the Messiah? And Jesus, uh, in a sense, gives her this honor that she goes and proclaims and becomes one of the first women missionaries to go and proclaim Jesus. That she comes from the city to the well as an outcast. She meets Jesus and she goes back in as a proclaimer of the Messiah. Meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say, there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Jesus tells the disciples, lift up your eyes and see that the field is ripe for harvest. And I wonder how do we need to lift up our eyes and see those among us? Maybe our coworkers, maybe those we interact with every day, maybe the cashier at the grocery store, maybe those that we know are outcasts among us. How do we need to lift up our eyes and see how God is already at work in their life, to see how they're curious about Jesus and spiritual things, and how we can enter into those conversations. Maybe simply with a question, and trust God with where the conversation goes from there. Verse 39, we see the result, that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Because of this one woman, and this one woman willing to share the story of her interaction with Jesus, many from this town believe. And it can be that simple, simply telling our story of what God has done over the years of our lives, or even what God has done in the past few weeks or months. That Jesus removes this woman's shame. He gives her honor uh, as she becomes a worshiper and proclaimer of him. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that no matter where we're at, because Jesus has come and lived and died and rose again, that he can remove our shame and give us honor, that he can remove our guilt and make us innocent before God, and that he can remove our fear and become our refuge and strength. So who are you overlooking? Who is maybe the woman at the well in your life? Who are the people in your everyday life, like Edward talked about, as you go to work or school or the grocery store, who desperately want to know Jesus, but maybe have never thought that they could have access to him or have never heard him explained in a way that they realize that he's actually what they've been searching for. I'm gonna have us just pause for a moment and I would challenge you to take a moment to just ask God, would you show me this week as I go about everyday life who it is in my life? We will be praying for you guys this week that you would have some pretty amazing stories when you get back together next Sunday of seeing everyday encounters where you get to share Jesus. 
We are excited that in two weeks, students show up on campus, and we are praying for everyday encounters as we walk across campus or get meals in the dining halls, um, as we have Samuel with us, he's a student magnet, um, that we'll just get to help students see Christ. We are, I don't know that we can put it into words, honestly, we are incredibly grateful for the ways that you as a church and as families and individuals partner with us in making that possible for us to be there. We love getting to connect with you. Um, you get to hear from us because we're up here, but we want to hear from you too. So please come find us in our table in the lobby and back. Um, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, we would love for you to partner with us financially. One of our goals um, in having a house so close to campus is to feed students lots of dinners. But if you've ever fed college students, you know that's a lot of food. So we would love to have the money to do that. Wow. Um, and we would really value you praying for us as well. We have a prayer walk on campus next Sunday if you want to make the drive out to Durham um, or if you want to sign up to get emails, we'll send out a way that you can be praying as students get ready to come. So yeah, please come find us in the lobby and back. And I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff to come up and close us out. Let's thank Edward and Emily for being here today. And Why don't you guys just go, once we're getting to the end of singing, go out there ahead of us, all right? But great, awesome. You know, everything was great until you asked that question. Mm. It's really, it really good until you said, so who is the woman at the well that you're overlooking? Who is that person that you're not seeing that you're overlooking? And I just sat in my chair and I began to ask God, who is that person? Who is the person this week that you need to see? You need to get out, I, I need to get out of myself and out of my own way. Who am I to see who needs living water? So thank you, kind of, for that challenge. Because <laughs> now my head is turning to wonder, who is it that God wants me to encounter this week? And we're just going to celebrate what God will do in the midst of that. Let's stand together as we close our worship together. People say that sharing the gospel is one beggar telling another where to find bread. So let's do that. Receive this benediction, if you would. May you know that God's arms are open wide. So bring him your fear, your guilt, and your shame. And in Jesus, find the living water of forgiveness and honor and power to live. And then go into this world and may we see those who have been forgotten, who we overlook, and who are living in brokenness. And may we share with them the treasure we've found. May we be that people. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Greet one another in the name of our Savior. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>